Matthew chapter 1 tonight, verses 1 through 17, is God's word for you. It's authoritative because he wrote it. It's meaningful and true, and it's for you now. So give it your attention, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 17. And yes, I'm reading the right passage if you think I made a mistake about halfway through. This is a genealogy. So it's still God's word. Let's listen to it. <laughs> Sometimes people wonder if I made the reading the wrong text, but I'm not. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You might not believe it, but this is God's word. Let's read it together, or excuse me, let's pray together and ask him to help us as we spend a few minutes looking at it. Please pray with me. Father, come now and help us as we spend time together under the authority of your word. Lord, we have looked in the past months at how you have been at work in history, revealing to us Jesus in so many ways and through so many different people. And we ask tonight that you would reveal to us really and truly by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is truly a man with a father and a grandfather and a great-grandfather. He is a man with a story, and he is also the fulfillment of this world, the fulfillment of the story of God, and indeed the fulfillment of all of our hopes and longings if we will trust him. So grant to us tonight, we pray, trust in the Son of God, Messiah, God with us, Emmanuel. We ask it in the name of Jesus, who is here present now. Amen. How do you answer the question, who are you? You know, there's obviously multiple ways that people tend to answer that question. Maybe you say, I'm Luke and I'm a golfer, although I'm not a very good one. Maybe you say, I'm Luke and I work for X company. Or maybe you say, I'm Luke and I fly a T-38 for the Air Force. No matter what you say, um, most of the time we answer that question, we'll say something about ourselves and then maybe say something about what we do. 
But very rarely do, well, actually, I've never heard anyone answer the question when I ask them, who are you, by giving me a genealogy. That's exactly what we read here, however, when Jesus, the Christ, is introduced to us. You know, when someone asks me, who am I, it would in many ways be very appropriate for me to say, I'm Luke Evans. My dad is David Evans. He's a former Southern Baptist pastor who's now an oil and gas land man in Odessa, Texas. His dad was Gerald Evans, who's a World War II veteran. And after he retired from the military, moved to West Texas and worked on the oil fields. His father was Arthur Evans, who was a farmer and a rural mail carrier in East Texas in the late 19th century. And his father was David Jefferson Evans, who was also a farmer and was born on the eve of the Civil War. You know, that really tells you a lot about me. It tells me a lot about me. Why don't we answer the question, who are you, by telling people about our family? Well, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons other than the fact that it's a little bit socially awkward. One of the reasons probably, okay, a lot socially awkward. One of the reasons probably, however, that we don't deep in our hearts want people to know all that about us is because we like to tell people about the things that we can control. You know, in many ways, I can control what I do. I can control what my hobbies are. I can control a lot of things that I tell you, but I can't control my family. You know that old saying, you can pick your friends and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family, right? We don't get to pick our family. That's something that none of us have the privilege of doing. We are merely passively born into the family that God chooses. But there is one person in the history of the world who, in fact, picked his own family. He just happens to be the God of the universe. And he decided in his sovereign wisdom about 2,000 years ago, to become a man and not relinquish his godness. And he chose a particular family to enter this world through. Joseph and his mother Mary were his earthly parents. And what we read here in the opening of the New Testament, in the opening of the Gospel of Matthew, is about Jesus' family. It's about Jesus' story. And so in many ways, what we see in these first few verses of Matthew is is a summary of everything we've been trying to cover in this series, the story of God. Matthew 1, 1 through 17, in many ways, is it's a summary of everything that's happened so far. This week, the uh, the new Star Wars trailer for Star Wars 7 got released. And uh, apparently it came out on Friday, but I had heard that it was coming out sometime in the middle of the week, and so I started getting on YouTube to look for it. And there were, there were like multiple fake trailers for Star Wars that to me looked completely legitimate. There was like at least five fake trailers that I watched before I finally saw the real one. And the real one is awesome. It's going to be cool. A year from now, the movie's coming out. So they're already marketing it, of course. And uh, some of the other fake ones were pretty cool too. But one thing they did was create a sense of expectation in me for the movie. Because they summed up everything that happens in the Star Wars universe, that story that most of us are, are so familiar with. They, they summarized the story so far just by showing me pictures of, of Luke Skywalker and of Anakin and of Han Solo and of the Millennium Falcon and of the Death Star. It got me excited. And then it gave a sneak peek of how the story is going to continue exactly what Matthew is doing as he opens up his gospel. He is, through this genealogy, summarizing the story of the Old Testament in extremely condensed, succinct ways. And and really what he's doing as well is showing us as readers that the story of the Bible, the story of God, all of these 
people and all of these events that we've been looking at over the past few months reach their fulfillment. They reach their end. They reach their telos, their perfection in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, Matthew says in the very first book, verse of the New Testament, is the son of David and the son of Abraham. That really means he is the fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament. And so tonight, I want to just take a couple of minutes as we begin to think together about Advent and how Jesus' birth encapsulates and summarizes for us God's story and also your story. I want to take a couple of minutes and show you three things real quickly in this genealogy probably which many of us, if we start our New Testament Bible reading on January 1st, will start in Matthew 1.18. We'll look at this and say, oh, I'm going to skip all those names and then start there. But there's, there's very important things here for us. So let me show you three things as we think together about how the birth of Jesus is. It's the happy ending, the happy ending of God's story. Three points. Jesus is Abraham's happy ending. He's David's happy ending. And he's Israel's happy ending. Abraham's, David's, and Israel's happy ending. Okay, first, there in one one, as I just said, we see that Jesus is called by Matthew, the son of David and the son of Abraham. He's Abraham's happy ending. Now, a Jewish person reading this, that's who Matthew initially addressed this gospel to thousands of years ago. When they read that Jesus was the son of Abraham, that would have been like a huge deal. That would have been like an American history Buff, hearing that the great-great-great-grandson of George Washington is having a conversation with you. It's a, it's a big deal for a Jewish person to be called or to hear about someone who is the son of Abraham. This is a big signal for Matthew that Jesus is fully and really Jewish. Because Abraham was the father of their nation. And he's really seen in the Bible as, as a paradigm of faith and faithfulness. We've studied Abraham a little bit in this series. And we see here that, that Matthew, among other things, is he's establishing Jesus' earthly line. Jesus really does come from the people of God of the Old Testament, from the nation of Israel. But the main thing that Matthew is wanting to show you when you read that Jesus is Abraham's son is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God Yahweh made to Abraham thousands of years before Jesus was even born. What were the promises that God made to Abraham? You remember them? Way back in Genesis 12, we studied them just a few months ago. First of all, he said that through Abraham, every nation in the world would be blessed and that he would make Abraham's name great great, and would make him a blessing that he would have a son. These are vast panoramic, big-time promises that God makes to this seemingly random guy that he just sovereignly plucks out of ancient Babylon and says, you're the man through whom I'm going to save this universe. And you know, if you read through Abraham's story, and as you reflect on Abraham's story now, you'll, you'll remember that to believe those promises for Abraham was, was an absurd an absurd proposition. It was, a, it was a matchless thing to consider that God was actually going to do what he promised. When you consider how uncertain things were in Abraham's life, that becomes especially vivid. Remember, God promises Abraham a son. And when he makes that promise, Abraham is he's in the geriatric unit. 
He's way past childbearing age, and so is his wife. They are old. They're in their retirement years, in the twilight of their life. And his wife has been barren. And Abraham is told by God, you will have a son. And Abraham looks at his lovely, beautiful wife, and he says, listen, I love her, but it ain't happening, God. There's no way. And yet, despite the seeming impossibility of it, Genesis tells us that Abraham believed God. He believed God. And it was counted or credited to him as righteousness. He finally does have the son. And then God tells Abraham to take Isaac up on top of the mountain and sacrifice him. Think of how unbelievable God's promises must have been as Abraham is walking up the mountain with his son in tow and firewood over his shoulder, preparing to even obey God in this. It's almost impossible to imagine that Abraham could have believed God's promises. It seems like a massive stretch. At the last moment, God stayed Abraham's hand and Isaac was allowed by God to live. Imagine what it would have been like for Abraham when he first entered into the land that God had promised him. God had said, I'm going to give you and your descendants this entire land. And he looks around and he sees the land occupied by foreign tribes and foreign peoples who have walls around their cities and who have armies that are big and who have economic resources that Abraham can't match. The idea that God is going to grant to Abraham these promises was a huge, huge, huge seeming improbability then. But Abraham believed. And we see in Jesus that, that all of those promises in him reached their fulfillment. You see, Jesus is the son of Abraham because, as Luke tells us, when Jesus comes, there really is now peace on earth through the family of Abraham, through the son of Abraham. The entire world is blessed. When Jesus comes, Abraham's descendants and those who are spiritually his descendants by faith don't just inherit a piece of real estate in ancient or modern-day Palestine. They inherit the entire kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, all of God's promises to Abraham, you see. They have their yes. They have their fulfillment. They have their amen in the birth of Abraham's son, Jesus. Do the promises of God ever seem like a massive stretch to you? So we think about what Abraham must have been thinking as he tried to believe what God had told him. We can't help, I hope, but think about some of the things that we struggle to believe in our own lives as Christians. You know, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, God has promised you that through faith right now you were dead, D-E-A-D, dead to the power of sin. Think about what a, what, a, uh, what a stretch it is to believe that that's true in our day-to-day life. You know, think about how much you seem to, seem to struggle as a believer with the same things over and over and over, again and again and again. And yet God has promised you are dead to sin and to its power and to its guilt. It has no mastery over you. Jesus also has through his death and resurrection, promised us that we are a part of a real family and a real community that we call the church. Now think about what a massive stretch it is to really believe that we're a part of a family. That as we look around at each other in here, if we've placed our trust in Jesus, we are truly brothers and sisters. That is hard to believe sometimes, especially when you've been around the church for a while and you're frustrated with the people that are sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you. 
especially when your own family history is so broken and messed up that you find it hard to believe that there could be any such thing as a functional spiritual family. That's a hard promise to take hold of. But it's true through Jesus. Think about the massive stretch of believing that that God is going to work out all things for your good. When you look around the world and see things happening, like even if happened this week in places like Ferguson, Missouri, or that have happened this week far, far from us in places like Syria and North Korea and China. Think about the brokenness that you see all around and the brokenness that you know inside your own heart and imagine how, how much of a stretch it is at times to believe. To believe that God is going to work all these things for good and one day there will be no more suffering, no more, no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow. That's hard. It's hard to believe for us, just like it was hard to believe for Abraham. But when you see, when you see that God made himself one of us in a little baby in a cattle stall, 2,000 years ago in the middle of nowhere. Then you see the risk and the depth that God was willing to go to in order to keep his promises. You see, when you believe and see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises God made to Abraham, massive stretch though it is to believe them, you can begin to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that God has made to you. He's Abraham's son. He's Abraham's happy ending. Second, he's David's happy ending. Verse 6 gets to David. By the way, this genealogy is structured in 14s. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 from the exile to Jesus. They're not uh, exhaustive. Matthew's clearly skipping some of the generations here. He's doing it to make a stylistic point. But the point Secondly here, beginning in verse 6 and going through verse 11, is that, is that Jesus is not just Abraham's happy ending. He's not just the son of Abraham in his birth, but he's also David's happy ending and the son of David in his birth. Look there. We see that David's line leads directly to Joseph, who is the earthly father of Jesus. Now, again, to Matthew's original readers, they're reading this and they're thinking, okay, you've talked about Abraham, so no, not only is Jesus a legitimate Jewish man, but Jesus is also... Because you're now talking about David, a legitimate king. He is a legitimate heir to the line of David's throne. He has a right to David's kingdom. Remember that the promises that God made to David were just as vast and just as amazing as the promise that God made to Abraham. God promised Abraham that every person on the world would be blessed through your family. And God promised David, as we just saw a few weeks ago, that one of your sons will always sit on your throne. Now, we read here through these names and see some people we know, some people we might not know. David and Solomon are the most famous of the kings of Israel. They have some high highs. They have some great moments. Some some pretty amazing things happen to them in their kingship. But as you move forward in the history of God's people, and particularly in the monarchy, things descend and spiral downward very, very quickly. David's line and the kingdom go from a high peak point in Solomon way, way down through Rehoboam and some of these other kings like Manasseh and others. And it gets to the point eventually where it looks like the line of David is going to be completely overrun for good when the people of God are exiled into Babylon. And the reason for that is because of the persistent and ongoing sin of these kings. God made good promises to David. God kept the promises that he made to David for Solomon. And yet these men, these men did, they did despicable things in their life. 
David is a murderer and an adulterer. Many of the further kings do things worse. And moreover, they are idolaters who lead the people to follow false gods. And yet, here's the point. God's promise is not revoked by the sin of David and David's sons. Because the final son of David has come in Jesus. You see, Jesus is the true and good king. Jesus is the real man after God's own heart. Jesus succeeds as our Lord and ruler where all of David's other descendants failed. And so just like with Abraham, when we think about it seems that God's promises are matchless, that it's so, so matchless at times that it's hard for us to really believe them. So with David, I think we can take home this idea. You are never so far gone in your rebellion, in your sin, in your badness and lawlessness that the grace of God cannot reach you. There is never, there has never been a person who has lived on the face of this planet who is so, so vile, whose sins were so heinous, whose actions were so abominable that the blood of Jesus could not have covered them. There has never been an act that you have committed, nor will there ever be an act that you could possibly commit that will render you unsavable. Your sin is not as powerful as God's grace. You see, that's what Jesus is showing us when we read here that he is the true son of David. Yes, these kings tottered, these kings fell, these kings sinned, these kings led God's people astray, even into exile. And yet Jesus is still born as the perfect and true and righteous king. If that is true, then it means, then it means that you are never too far gone for the love of God. You're never beyond the reach of his mercy. You ever feel that way? Maybe you're here right now, and as we start thinking about Christmas, you start thinking about spiritual things more than you normally do. Maybe you've had something happen to you in the last week or in the last month. Heck, in the last six months that you just can't get out of your head because it was so seemingly out of character. You think, I cannot believe I did that. I've, I've ruined that relationship. I've made a mess of my marriage. My kids are never going to be able to forgive me. I can't believe I lied or cheated or stole this thing or that thing or that thing at work. If, 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 I, had only, if I could only get in a time machine and go back in time and, and fix that one wrong, things would be so much better for me. Maybe you're in a place like that right now where, where really deep down you think that you're too broken, too bad, too sinful, too irreligious, too careless and thoughtless to really receive and rest in the promises that God offers you. Listen, the birth of Jesus the son of David proves that there is never a time where your sin is so strong that the power of God's love cannot find you. The sweetness and the power of the gospel is seen here in this seemingly obscure genealogy. And it tells you that just as God freely accepted David and his sons as righteous by his grace, so through faith, Jesus freely accepts you as sons and daughters, righteous forever by his grace. Jesus is David's happy ending, the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to him. And then lastly, Jesus is Israel's happy ending. We read here in the final few verses that after the exile, there's 14 generations that Matthew mentions for us before he gets to Joseph and Mary and Jesus. 
And really, if you read through those verses again, you'll probably, if you're anything like me, you'll probably be somewhat familiar, maybe, with like the first couple. And after that, they're very obscure names. Even if you've read the Bible a lot, you might have known many of those names in the first few verses, but we get to these last few verses, and and there's not much there that you're familiar with. Because it's covering, in some part, uh, the, end, the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which is about a 400-year period, by the way. That's called the intertestamental period. 400 years, some of these names cover that period of time. But the point, I think, is found exactly in that obscurity. I think that's exactly what Matthew wants to draw out for us. You know, he's saying here that, that when these men lived, Israel, God's people, were in a very low period. They were scattered and shattered. They were broken and fragmented. They didn't have a home. They didn't have a temple like they once did. They weren't obeying God as a nation nation like they once did. Things are looking very bad. Things are looking extremely dark for Israel. They're impoverished. They're hurting. They're a mess. And yet the promise still stands, even in these obscure names that we never will probably know anything about this side of heaven. Just as Jesus fulfills the promises of the famous characters of the Bible, like Abraham and David, so Jesus works in the dark corners of this universe in the way the kingdom of God always works, using the humble and the lowly and the no-names to exalt himself over the proud and the rich and the famous. The upside-down nature of the kingdom of God and the way it comes is seen even in the strangeness of these names. Think about that with me as we conclude. Do you ever feel as if the obscurity of your life means that God has functionally forgotten you? you ever wonder if anyone even knows or cares about what you're going through? The birth of Jesus, listen, the birth of Jesus to a peasant worker who was in the line of David shows you that God cares for those in the background, for those on the margins, for the scattered and the tattered and the torn. God sees the weak and the disheveled and the impoverished and the tormented and the needy, and he does not forget them. In fact, God works through them in particular ways. When you feel like you have been left off the face of this earth to live your life in obscurity and no one knows you and no one cares about you, know in those moments that God is maybe closer to you then than he ever was prior. God cares deeply for the least of these, for the names that we will never hear again until heaven God cares for those who are living their life on the margins. God remembers you when you feel that you're toiling away while no one notices. If the birth of Jesus to an obscure peasant carpenter in a little bitty no-name town in the Middle East 2,000 years ago doesn't teach us that God cares about the weak and the nameless, then nothing does. See, God chose himself to be born among those types of people. Don't let the world tell you that the key to joy, that the key to happiness, that the key to a flourishing life 
is to achieve fame or fortune. In many ways, the key to happiness, the key to flourishing, the key to a blessed and joyous life is to realize your emptiness and your lack and to look to Jesus who shared it with us that we might one day share all of his riches with him. That's what Christmas is about. It's about about the God who, who gave up everything to become nothing so that we who are nothing could in him have everything. And it's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the gospel is true. Thank you for sending Jesus to be born in our world. It's amazing, Father. You are infinite and eternal. You are not constrained in your essence by space, nor are you constrained by time. In fact, you are the creator of everything, Lord. You stand outside of your creation as creator God. And creation is dependent upon you at all times for its ongoing existence. Just like the breath that we currently draw only happens because you are upholding this universe by your powerful right hand. And yet, Lord, you at the same time remained that God and became one of us. You entered into time and you entered into space and you didn't enter in in a way that everyone would immediately know that God had arrived. But no, you entered in in a particular family that had a particular story. You came to be of a particular people that wasn't the best, it wasn't the brightest, it wasn't the strongest, but it was who you chose to make yourself a part of, God. And Father, in the birth of Jesus, we see then this story that we've been studying for months now come to its conclusion and fulfillment. We see the promises that you made to Abraham come true in Jesus. We see the promises that you made to David come true in Jesus. We see the promises that you made to the most obscure Israelite who's ever lived come true in Jesus of Nazareth, the true Israelite, the true Abraham, the true David. And Father, we see in Jesus that the promises that you make to us Promises to be for us and not against us. Promises to give us life. Promise to, promises to give us hope. Promises to give us new birth through faith. All have their answer in him. And so, Jesus, we worship you tonight as our prince. We worship you tonight as our king. We worship you tonight as the saving one who came as a child and died as a servant and yet was raised as a king. We love you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.